I just don't know what to think about that guy. Pollsters are weird, man. Yes. Yeah, there we go. We'll just say that. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm here in the Upper Room Studios with one Scott Melson. Hello, Scott. What's up, man? You have a friend with you today. I do. Who's with us? Mithin. Mithin. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Mithin Monsinghani. That's pretty darn good. Yeah. How do you, how do you actually say it? That, that, that's perfect. I'm not going to correct that. Hot damn. <laughs> we'll take it. Look at that. Mithin is the Solicitor General for the state of Oklahoma. Is that correct? That's correct. I pronounced that correctly. You guys didn't know we had one of those, did you? <laughs> That's exactly right. Right now, you're all picturing some old guy in long black robes and a white wig with a British accent. And Mithin is none of those. I wish. So. Except for the wig, which is a little awkward <laughs> with his Bermuda shorts. Why, why did he bring that, do you think, the, I, the long white wig? I think it's an air of prestige. The curls lend it gravitas. I left <laughs> my powder at home. Oh, that's true. <laughs> We're obviously just kidding. Uh, but he is wearing a suit, which is more than Scott and I can say. Yeah. I brought a sport coat today and left it in the car the entire day. Unlike usual, I'm not potting naked. That's <laughs> true. Praise be. <laughs> <laughs> just so we're all clear, I've never potted naked. No, just our souls. <laughs> um, so uh, we are going to visit with uh, Mithin here in just a minute. Um, but first, uh, we don't not really any announcements right now. At the time this episode airs, it'll be after the uh, the primary runoff, after our debates, and we are full steam ahead towards the general election, barring any bizarre news that comes out in the next week. I'm so excited. I love election season. So Scott and I are both on vacation at the time you're listening to this, which is why we're recording today. I'm still voting, though. And it, that's right. We're, are you voting early? I'm voting tomorrow. I'm going to go on... I think on Saturday morning. Are you positive that you can? Because it's a runoff and they only offer early voting on Saturdays and Sundays in statewide and federal elections. I know that this is technically a statewide election because it's a statewide runoff, but you might want to verify. That's an excellent question. They announced early voting today, so I'm assuming so. Okay. I will be at the election board at some point tomorrow to cast my ballot. All right. Good for you. I think we're planning to go on Saturday. It is my wife's birthday. And what better way to celebrate than early voting? Dude, should I, right? should I wear my I Voted t-shirt? I was about to say, you should wear your I Voted t-shirt. Do you want an I Voted t-shirt? That sounds pretty amazing. Do you sell them in extra smalls? Uh, you know what? I, you, came on the, you came on the pod. I bet, we can, uh, I bet we can make it happen. We can make this happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you, listeners, would like a fashionable navy blue, very soft t-shirt with a I Voted sticker screen printed on the left chest where everyone wears your sticker. Why? Why is it screen printed? Because that's how the shirt is made. Because it's not a sticker. It's a way of life. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is true. It is a way of life. I'm always voting. Hello, I voted every day. Uh, and, uh, and a little quote from uh, Margaret Mead on the back that, um, that we have on our website. What is it? Never underestimate the, uh, the power of a group of people. Small group of people to Damn change it. the world. Yeah. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. That's exactly right. That's on the back of the shirt. I get a lot of compliments on that shirt. It's a good shirt. Well done. You can buy them. You can purchase them online on letsfixthisok.org slash store. Also, we now have a little Let's Fix This soft enamel lapel pins. It's It's a soft enamel pin. You can put it on your lapel, your hat, your backpack, your purse strap, your dog leash, your your thing in your car sun the visor sun visor do people put lapel pins I don't, on you put whatever you want listen if you want to show off your let's fix this flare I don't care where you put it you put a flare on your sun visor don't you I do not I have a new car I'm not it's new to me I'm not I put a sticker on the back which you can also buy in the online store four inch uh, it is UV protected great bumper sticker material thick thick government plastic um, let's fix this round sticker what kind of car do you did you did you get we talked about this in the last episode i got a subaru outback it looks just like yours damn it i know i know (laughs) same color same color i'm so proud Um, thank you i'm i'm thoroughly enjoyed all right so we have those uh those those things for sale and um let's start with our weekly question which we skipped last week Um, but we do have a uh, a weekly question That's our sound effect we're trying out tonight for for the weekly question. You can vote on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, just just tweet at us. Good sound effect, 
Bad sound effect. Good use of sound effect or bad use of sound effect? There we go. All right, sad so. that you disenfranchise non-Twitter users like myself. Also on Facebook. Wow. Ooh, there's a new platform he's called... He's calling me out. It's, we're like five minutes in. He's we'll call already, him out for not being on Twitter. He's already throwing shade. Even the president is on Twitter, which is a good reason to not be on, I suppose. But Particularly um, when you read his tweets. They are bizarre. This is what about Michael Cohen today was pretty funny. Where he's like, if you need a good attorney, don't call this guy. <laughs> Did you see the other thing he said this morning? No, that's all I saw. Yeah. He said... Campaign final viol- campaign finance violations are not a crime. Okay. But I don't but they are though. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but my <laughs> understanding is that I mean, if you get indicted and then plead guilty to campaign finance violations, it would seem to suggest that it's a crime. Or at least unsavory. No, no. 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 <laughs> I don't know. Crime. I'm not a lawyer. I don't think I'm not going to put Mythin on the spot here. Being non-specific, can you plead guilty to something that's not a crime? Is that a thing that can happen? No. See? <laughs> okay. So you can't plead guilty to something that's not a crime. I don't have enough knowledge to argue this. You're the one who should teach the LSAT courses. Yes, you technically can, but you'd have a good chance on appeal. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's not a thing, right? You could just be like, like, I could plead guilty for loving cheese too much, but it's not a crime. It just seems like if you go to court, they're like, how do you plead? And like, guilty. But like, you're pleading for something. But if it's not a crime, you wouldn't be in court, man. You're Yes, this is what I'm saying. Campaign finance violations are crimes. Okay. <laughs> Let's go back to our weekly question. I'm going to play the sound effect again. That's right. It's time for our weekly question. Our question today is... I need a drum roll. That's, what, that's the sound effect I need. Anyway. If a candidate aligns themselves with another notable current political figure, does that positively affect your opinion as a voter of that candidate? So in many cases, it's the president. Like right now, some candidates are aligning themselves with President Trump. Candidates formally align themselves with President Obama. Obviously, different candidates. Um, but if if a candidate that you are paying attention to of either party aligns himself with someone else, does that help your opinion of the candidate? Please respond on Twitter. You can tweet at us at, at Let's Fix This OK. We would love to hear from you. You can also email if you have a longer uh, response. Podcast at Let's Fix This OK.org. You want to know something funny? Please. You were like, obviously, different candidates? There Not necessarily, I guess. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, North Dakota. Aligned herself with President Obama. And in this election cycle, currently emphasizing the fact that she votes with President Trump over 50% of the time. Over... That seems over 50% is not that much considering there's people who vote with him like 99.9% of the time. Right. But it's still a majority. That's all I got. Was that a joke? No, I don't know. I just, it's the applause is. That was a bad joke. That was a joke. Somebody, we're going to take that thing away from you. Just showing off my new sound effects that I downloaded a minute ago. All Uh right. Shall we get into it? We should. So we've got um, three. Uh, three articles in our news roundup today uh, that we're going to run through. Well, two articles and then two other tidbits. Tidbits, written tidbits. And Mithin is wondering, why did I get myself into here? So the first thing uh, is really a recommendation for you guys and and all of our listeners. There's a book that came out this week um, called Boomtown by Sam Anderson. Mithin, have you seen this? Yes. All right, so I got uh, an advanced copy in the mail the other day. I don't, I don't know how. It just came. I was very excited. So I started reading it. Hashtag Big Daddy. Or something. Um, I think I, probably a friend of a friend of a friend had extra books in their garage and they're, you know, just need to get rid of them. Anyway, it's a, it's actually a fantastic book. So it's about Oklahoma City. Uh, Sam Anderson writes for the Times, I think, came to Oklahoma with the assignment to write about the Thunder, specifically uh, James Harden when he was here in that kind of transition. Hashtag The Beard the beard back in 2012 ish. And, uh, when Mr. Anderson got here, he says he realized there was something different about Oklahoma city, something curious. Uh, and he said, I'm going to need to spend more time here and get into it. So the book, the way it's written, he's an excellent writer. It's written. It starts at the beginning, right? So, well, he really does go into Pangea. If you can believe that, like the beginning way back. Uh, but then skips ahead a few millennia to, the land run, but each chapter is only a few pages long. And he's kind of telling concurrent stories of how Oklahoma city was founded, how the thunder got here. And then the thunder's development, Westbrook 
Harden, Durant, how all this stuff came to be. And the the does phrase, he talk about Durant's ultimate betrayal? Not yet. I'm, I'm only on like page 104, but I think it may be coming. But the the way that he phrases things, he like draws parallels between the land run and the Thunder's roster and how you know Presti's process is like held above all else and and how that is similar to the stuff in the beginning anyway it is ensnaring and it's very interesting it's funny it's weird it makes you reflect on oklahoma as a state and oklahoma city in particular Uh, the book opens with a story about a gunfight and i do love a western uh, and the gunfight is a little graphic and horrific because there was a lot of blood involved and someone biting someone's ear uh anyway recommend it boomtown check it out i'm sure it's on amazon and you can probably get it full circle i've heard i mean i've heard great things about it um you can borrow it when i'm done if you know it's on my on my list of things to read i bet you can get it full circle i bet you can get it at commonplace too i'm sure you can we should hit up hit up ben knuckles at uh commonplace thanks ben good place um all right so the second thing we want to highlight is that 538 politics which is an excellent website whom we mention almost weekly they we, folk, we kind of idolize them a little bit. We we both listen to their podcast for one, so that's yes. part of our weekly consumption of news. Uh, 538, all spelled out, not the numbers, 538.com. They released their much-anticipated house forecast this week. So this is for the election. They forecast uh, what the election is going to look like for the House of Representatives, for the U.S. House. And again, we don't normally talk about national-level stuff because we listen to 538 and you and I talk about it off the air. Yes. Constantly. Constantly. And so, uh, in fact, you texted me like the moment this was yeah. posted. It's, like, it's, it's out, out. It's out. It's out. It's out. It's out. Um, well, so they've got three three hamburger rated levels, light, classic, and deluxe, which Nate Silver says adds bacon. Um, and it's, oh, it's a really data-driven way to look at polls and how to, how to see what's going to happen. And they constantly update it with new polls that are coming out. If you're interested in polling and numbers and stats and some, I think, some good political insight, they do have a great podcast. I gonna, chances are, if you listen to this podcast, you will dig their house model. Like yeah. you should, if you if you listen to Andy and I rant every week, you should check out 538 because you will enjoy it. Yeah. And if you take any issue with their model, um, tweet at them. Yes. Uh, uh, and they do also solicit feedback. However... Um, before you take issue with the model, uh, I would say come, come prepared because they've got like, <laughs> they've got like doctoral statisticians that work on this deal. So it is a smart just, deal. If you're, if you're going to come at them, uh, bring your, bring your stuff. Yeah. So they have a forecast for every district, um, which is really interesting, including districts here in Oklahoma. Um, you can kind of hover over it and it's pretty interesting. They've, and they, this year they're doing like the chance of winning rather than just a percentage. They're also saying like are greater than 99 out of a hundred chance that he'll like Mark Wayne Mullen is who I'm looking at here in Oklahoma's second district. Um, let's do, we, we live in the Oklahoma fifth district. So right now, Steve Russell has a seven and nine chance. Kendra Horn, a two and nine chance. According to this, Scott, you pointed out that the two and nine chances similar to what Trump had at this stage yeah. for winning the presidency. Yeah, so if you look at the if you look at the prediction for the Oklahoma fifth, the odds of Kinder Horn winning are roughly the same as the odds were of Donald Trump winning the presidency. So yeah, that's just food for thought. It is interesting, and there's a long way to go till the election. So uh, there's that. Check out five thirty eight dot com. Second article, uh, well, first actual article. We have one from Oklahoma Watch called Stitt's Mortgage Firm Failed to Tell Regulators of Past Problems. If you've watched TV in the last couple of weeks, you or, or listened to our podcast last week with um, with Daniela, we discussed some of the ads that have been coming out um, about Kevin Stitt. So he's the guy from Tulsa. He's running for governor, running for the Republican nomination right now against Mick Cornett. And um, this news really came out early on in the election from Gary Richardson, the attorney from Tulsa that I think he paid for the research on this uh, initially. That so Stitt owns Gateway Mortgage, and uh, you know of all the industries that have faced some turmoil in the last decade, mortgage industry is one, uh, and so they had some pretty big fines back in um, 2009, 2011, the state of Wisconsin, um, 
like uh, stopped, like pulled their license um, and they had to reapply for it. There's some kind of stuff back then. And so it's just interesting. I think it's, if you're, if you're someone who likes to really look into everything about a candidate yeah. and their businesses with whom yeah. they associate. Well, and if you've seen, if you've been paying attention to the ads, right? So we talked last week about the Bullstead ad that uh, Mick Cornette has been running. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to kind of get beyond, all right, well, you know, Mick Cornette's running this ad, but is there really anything to it? This is an article that kind of lets you explore like, okay, what's what's the substance behind the attack at right like how right like you know is that true yeah and so this is this is kind of a reference to say like here's what's here's what's happened here's what hasn't happened and then you can look at that you can look at the ad and make up your own mind like does this this is something that we that makes sense or that that doesn't right um one thing that i had i was thinking about this um so the bullshit slogan and i have no idea like how this works let's say that kevin stitt wins the runoff mm-hmm. right and so then he faces drew evans in the general election can Drew Edmondson use like the bullstit? If it's not trademarked, but obviously it didn't work if, if Stid wins. Oh, I wouldn't say that it didn't work. So um if you I would say I mean I would say the fact or or maybe the fact that it if Kevin Stitt wins, that doesn't mean that the bullstit is not an effective line of attack. It means it's not an effective attack in a Republican primary, right? Where you're talking to like a very different voter, particularly in a Republican primary runoff right. than you are for a general election. And I just didn't know, like, I don't know if those things are like, once you put something like that in a political ad, is it trademarked or copyrighted in any way that another campaign couldn't just like Not use it? They file for it. Yeah. And that's interesting because one of the things that has come up in Republican circles in the last couple of weeks, there are people that are concerned about how nasty this primary has gotten. Mm-hmm. And they're worried that that nastiness is going to carry over into the general election. Um, you know, now that's an argument that we hear in elections all the time people said it about the democratic primary in 2008 they said it about the republican primary in 2016 and those predictions were wildly off so the fact that the primary has gotten nasty does not mean that the general election is going to go one way or the other but i just thought it was an interesting question like could the like could edmondson pick up the exact same line of attack and even use the same slogan in his own ads right it's interesting it's possible um this past week i think on the news okay um the political state podcast that the folks at the oklahoma do ben felder and dale and justin what's up guys if you're listening chris is the other one uh they discussed it and they said you know like folks in the metro particularly like younger folks um really enjoyed that ad but when you got out into kind of the rural areas that ad does not resonate as well and so they were concerned it might backfire in cornet um, and Interesting. This, I mean, the ad was really released kind of in response to some polling that showed Cornette behind like nine or 11 points. And uh, and so that's, if you put this out as a way to try to close the gap, it might work in urban areas, but might not so well in rural areas. Why would it backfire in rural areas specifically? Because it's, uh, it's pretty close to saying shit, man. <laughs> like... And right. um, some people just don't appreciate that kind of sentiment, that kind of language being used. So from like a moral standpoint, like, yeah, a, yeah. oh, this is unbecoming? Yeah. And Interesting. Like, and I think a lot of people, uh, if you're watching Wheel of Fortune at night after dinner, right? And right before bed, and depending on your habits. The um, rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Yes. Um, that it's it could be a bit of a jarring thing. Like, I haven't asked my grandma about it, but I'm sure she's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't love it. Just based on the fact that it's, it's uh, a little bit crude. Or I will just perceived. let you know that my grandpa would have loved it. <laughs> my grandpa would have been like, my dad just ain't bullshit. That's what my grandpa would have said. Just go for the gold. Yeah. But, <laughs> all right. Fair enough. And then our last article is from the Frontier uh, Independent Journalism Outfit in Tulsa. Uh, really great. They do all kinds of great work. Uh, an article from Clifton Adcock titled... Many Oklahoma congressional candidates worth millions, financial disclosures show. So, again, this is on the national level, but if you are interested, um, it, I mean, we all know that yeah, it's Congress just, is, is way disproportionately filled with millionaires compared to the general public. Because a, a lot of people would argue that in order to successfully run, you need to be a millionaire. Yeah. So this looks at all the candidates who filed uh, a disclosure. Not everyone did. And uh, 
incumbents are required to. I don't think all the candidates are required to. Candidates are not required to. Um, but many do anyway. So it's it's really interesting to kind of see where folks stack up. I mean, some people have, you know, a net worth and they kind of estimate and they the frontier goes into how they estimated it. So, you know, some folks um, net worth estimated between, you know, negative 50,000 and positive 185,000. So um, that's kind of the range at which it might range when you factor in mortgages and that student loan debt and that kind of thing. Um, Goddamn student loans. Yeah, that's the truth. Man, I tell you what about student loans, though, while we're on the subject. I tried to consolidate mine this past week, but because my most recent loans from my MBA that I just finished, are they're st- it's still in-school status. Um. So with all this work and applied, and they sent the letter, and they're like, oh, well, you can't. Here, we can consolidate all your old ones, which are, it's like one big consolidation and then two tiny ones, but not these because they're still in-school status. And I was like, well, how, I'm out of school. How do I change that? And the lady basically said, you got to wait six months. I was like, but interest. like They're worried you might go back. Oh, yeah, I guess they probably have to get some notification. I just thought it was really inefficient. So, anywho, if you are curious about congressional members uh, or candidates and their net worth, check out The Frontier. As always, we will post these links on our blog page when this episode posts. Delightful. All right, uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk to our guest, Mithin, who is sitting by patiently. Indeed. Be right back. Hey, we're back. Myth and I like that you danced during that. That made me very happy. We like enthusiasm. <laughs> we here. do. Most here people pod. don't like my dancing, so that's unusual. Why? That's... Why, don't, why don't people like your dancing? You seem like you've got rhythm. You're a fun guy. He's got rhythm. He's got... I don't know. It's you, I've. I, well, I know, but I'm thinking about him. Oh. I don't have rhythm. <laughs> I, to, uh, evidence to the contrary right here. I, I snapped three times. And <laughs> <laughs> no, so we uh, we are very pleased to have a guest this week, Mithin Monsigani, who is the Solicitor General of Oklahoma. Hi, Mithin. How are you? Doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm good. I appreciate you being here. Mithin and I uh, serve and work together on another board here in... Uh, Oklahoma City, and we were talking a couple weeks ago at a function, and I was like, dude, you have a cool job. You should come on this podcast we do and talk about it. And he was like, yeah, right, I can do that. So here we are. Um, Mithin, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and kind of your background, and you know how, how did you become Mithin Munsingani Esquire Solicitor General of Oklahoma? Certainly. So I was born and raised in deep south Texas on the border with Mexico, I uh, went to college at Rice University down in Houston. Um, Is it the Owls? The Owls, Rice Owls. Go Owls. Owls. Yeah, go Owls. It's the Ivy League of Texas. Yeah, I mean, Ivy grows better in the South. It does. We say. Uh, and then I went to the um, place where Ivy doesn't grow as well. I went to Harvard for law school. Uh, and after that, clerked on a federal court of appeals, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, my judge, whose chambers are in Houston, the, the court space in New Orleans. And uh, then went to go work for a large law firm in D.C., which um, if any of your listeners are lawyers, kind of knows what the big law experience is like. Uh, Decided after a few years there that I wanted to enter into public service. Um, Started thinking about where I wanted to do that. And uh, Oklahoma kind of fit with what I was looking for best and came down here to serve as Deputy Solicitor General. Uh, And I did that for a couple years and... A year and a half ago, uh, Attorney General Mike Hunter appointed me to be the state's second Solicitor General. So you're you're technically are you are you a political appointee then? Is that uh, I'm appointed by an elected official. Okay. Uh, I'm a state employee, just like uh, <laughs> okay. uh, any other Assistant Attorney General or any other at will state employee. So I bring that up because I feel like there's a lot of things that are like get talked about in the media, and there's like these buzzwords that people automatically are like oh that must be terrible Mm -hmm. and one of them is like lobbyist one of them is career politician another one would be political appointee and it's just like look we got one sitting right here he's a a nice guy dedicated public servant you know like is appointed and that was a much more personal appointment than like um well, for a while i was um a member of the oklahoma suicide prevention council 
and was awaiting an appointment from the governor, which you just kind of apply online. And the way that council set up is that certain positions are appointed by the governor, by the speaker, by the pro tem. But it's not like she and I ever visited about it. Right. You just kind of apply and eventually they're supposed to send it back. I think there's a huge backlog of those kind of appointments that are floating around out there. Probably. Wouldn't it be cool but, if the governor could just be like, I appoint all the people that are on the waiting list. I would like to get knighted. Like if they was if we oh, came dude. into the blue room and she was like, I the appoint you to the suicide prevention council. That would be badass. That's not I, the I, I did get a commission. That was Ooh. Like a, it's a certificate that says the attorney general officially appoints me as right. solicitor general of the state of Oklahoma. Nice. It's, it's not, the it's not picture like a statutory you, position. It's, right, right. He just went up to you big time. Well, I'm I'm in no way trying to diminish his appointment. <laughs> Mine never came through, and I just um, got busy with other things. But uh, congratulations to you. Please go ahead. <laughs> so I, I I have several questions because I think you actually have a like it's a really um, it's a really I think that's a really cool kind of uh, origin story um, because it's one that gets I feel like that's an origin story that you hear like in media. Sometimes you hear about it on, you know, like TV shows, if you're obsessed with the West wing. So I'm just curious, like, so you went to undergrad, you went to law school at Harvard, which is just a tip of the hat to use her. Um, but then you were clerking for a, you said a U.S. circuit court of appeals judge. Is that that's, right? That's correct. So what is that experience like? And why, why as a young lawyer fresh out of school, is that something that you would want to do? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. So, um, you know, when people throw around the word clerk, they think of like the guy who's at the gas station behind the counter. They right. don't really know what it means. And so, for example, right now we're um, in the middle of a U.S. Supreme Court a, a nomination process with Justice uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh. And people will say, oh, you know, this person clerked for Judge Brett Kavanaugh or, you know, Judge Kavanaugh clerked for so-and-so. Um but a law clerk for a judge, for a federal judge, especially on the either district court, the appeals court, the Supreme Court, um, is uh, one of a set of people. So in the appeals realm, there's four law clerks uh, that act as the judge's uh, right-hand men and women. So they uh, research the law for the judges, they uh, help draft opinions, um, and they uh, act as sort of, you know, sort of vice or deputy judges in the sense that they are uh, helping the judge do his job in, in the very substantive sense, not in necessarily a clerical sense, uh, despite the fact that they're called a clerk, right. but in a, very, um, in a very real sense. So we help the judge decide cases by informing him about research, by uh, informing him about the, the, the facts of the case and things like that. Because there's a ton, like when you're, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're, when you're talking about court cases, particularly at like the level of the circuit court of appeals, um, which is the last stop right before the U S Supreme court, you're talking about cases that have been litigated already at several prior levels, right? And one or both of the parties is wanting it to continue move up to the cha- to move up the chain because they've been unhappy with a previous outcome. Right. That's right. And so these are cases typically that are pretty complicated. They have maybe a lot of like constitutional issues at at the core of them that maybe one of the parties feels like is either not clear or what seems to be clear should be kind of defined in a different way. And so there is a, I think that, I think there's a tendency to hold up judges. And I think Supreme court justices are the best example of this as like these, you know, brilliant minds and scholars. And I think that's true, but I also think that many brilliant minds and scholars have a lot of other really, really smart people that are helping them do the background research and debate the issues and discuss the issues and bring all of the facts together to help that person with, you know, this brilliant legal mind kind of formulate what they think. Is that accurate? Yeah. I sometimes joke that the government is actually run by 20 and 30 somethings, right? Because um, the judges and justices obviously pay important roles, but the law clerks are helping to write their opinions, right? Uh, Congress members and state representatives play important roles in voting, but who's actually writing the legislation, mm-hmm. right? It's their 20 or 30 something staffers. Um, so yeah, you know, law clerks play an important role. Um, and it's uh, a very important relationship too, between the judge and the law clerk, because the law judge acts as, uh, not just a boss, but a mentor. Right. Well, I think, you know, when we look at Supreme court nominations or anything, 
who someone clerked under is always very important. Uh, and I think understanding why that's important to be like, oh, this person was kind of their mentor. And so if you like them, you might like this person. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is oftentimes a job that's straight out of law school, right? So this is one Which of the is, first people to form you in a professional sense, not just an educational sense, as how you think as a lawyer. Which is interesting to me. Why is it that clerkships like this are something that tends to happen straight out of law school as opposed to something that happens after you've been in practice for, you know, a few years to, to kind of develop, you know, a, a thought process or a strategy that is unique to you? Uh, that's a good question. It's possible that some of it has to do with money. So if you're a really brilliant person and you've been a lawyer for 10 years, taking a huge pay cut to become a federal law clerk, uh, maybe not something you're, you're willing to do. So if the that judge just sense. wants really smart people, the best time to get them is uh, straight out of law school. Although, you know, uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, there are plenty of people who, ha who are uh, several years out of law school that uh, are clerking, especially... I think you know Justice Thomas and even Justice Alito tends to tends to hire people who've had uh, quite a bit more experience. And you know, um, the other answer might be something that's just kind of quirky in the legal profession. So, um, in almost all other academic fields, you have peer-reviewed journals, right? The, the the scholarship is published in journals that are reviewed, uh, selected, edited by people who are the peers of the scholars, right? Uh, other professors, other researchers, things like that. Not so with legal scholarship. Most legal scholarship and you know, often the highest quality legal scholarship is published by student-reviewed journals. So, Like the I, Harvard Law Review. Right, right. I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review, and I, as a relatively know-nothing, you know, second and third year law student at 22, 23 years old was judging scholarship about whether it should be published in the most cited legal journal in all of the country. Um, so there may be a culture in law, for example, for, for some reason that uh, tends to uh, give young people a lot of uh, interesting and meaningful opportunities. Interesting. That was not discussed in my business law class that I had when we discussed like <laughs> common law and, and how, how the law of the land in the United States comes to be. No mention of like, well, a bunch of 25 year olds are going to be just figuring stuff out. That's super, that's super interesting to me. I have a couple more questions about that and then we'll move on because I find this fascinating, but you know, I, don't know if, I don't know if all of our listeners do or not. Maybe they do. But um, so two things, these clerkships, um, again, particularly for, well, first of all, are there, are there clerkships that occur below the level of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals? Like, does the Oklahoma State Supreme Court, do they have law clerks? Law clerks? Yeah, like, absolutely. So I'm not going to say the Oklahoma Supreme <clears throat> Court is below the Court of Appeals. Okay. They're fair, two, two fair. entirely different systems. Fair enough. Um, That's a, that, is a, that, is a, that is an excellent uh, clarification. And people don't realize that those are separate. Right. Yeah, yeah. Separate tracks. But yeah, so federal district court judges, which are the trial judges, have law clerks. The Oklahoma Supreme Court has law clerks. So there are people outside of the Court of Appeals and the um, U.S. Supreme Court that are okay. law clerks. What I have heard is that clerkships at the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals level and, of course, the Supreme Court are quite competitive. Yes, very yeah. competitive. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's a pretty prestigious thing to be chosen to like come out of law school and clerk for one of these justices. So... I guess my final question is why would somebody who went to Rice and then went to Harvard law and then had a prestigious clerkship and then got a high powered lawyer job in a big firm in DC, which is kind of seems like that's like the, the career path for someone with that resume decide, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to work in public service and specifically I want to do it in the great state of Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it's probably a combination of two things. So one is the desire I've had um, for the entirety of my career to engage in public service at some point. And for me, it was more of a question, more of a question of when than if. Uh, at the time that I was at the firm, I kind of felt it was the right when time. Uh, and then, you know, why Oklahoma? It um, uh, the opportunities that were available here uh, in this state kind of appealed to me. Uh, best and uh, the opportunity to become Solicitor General uh, in a relatively short order of time um, 
was was really great and I'm glad I did it. Um, I'm very thankful for Attorney General Mike Hunter of giving me this opportunity uh, because uh, not only do I get to engage in public service, but I also have the opportunity to have uh, a lot more control over uh, the cases I litigate, to be the lead lawyer on those cases rather than being seventh down on the totem pole as a you know fifth, sixth-year lawyer where the 30-year partner is arguing the case. Um, one of the appeals of public service, regardless of, of where you're doing it in law, whether you're in a state attorney general's office or a prosecutor or a public defender, is uh, being able to get a lot more on your feet, responsibility, even managerial experience a lot quicker than you ever would in the private sector. Very cool. Very cool. Super interesting. Well, I feel like we've kind of already touched on like the next thing I want to get into, which is, you know, we mentioned earlier that I think most people hear solicitor and they're like, a, if they think of anything, they think of like some old white British dude in a powdered wig and a long black robe. Um, or just the no soliciting sign on someone's front door. Or that. That's probably what most people think of. I had an obsession with Charles Dickens as a kid, so I think of David Copperfield and solicitors. But anyway. Never read that's, that. That's because so. I'm a... Wow, dude. It wasn't a sign. I don't know. I read something else. Never just read things because they're awesome? Yeah, Boomtown by Sam Anderson right now. <laughs> <laughs> Go read David Copperfield. Um, I'll read that next. What so what what does the what is a solicitor general? What is Oklahoma with the solicitor general of Oklahoma? You what do you do? Yeah. So I'm the chief uh, advocate in court uh, for the state in appeals and constitutional issues, especially cases that are in front of the Oklahoma Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, other states have solicitors general. Not all of them do. Uh, the United States has had a long-standing solicitor general. Um, and right now it is Noel Francisco, um, but they vary from administration to administration. Harriet Myers. Uh, Harriet Myers is not a sister general. She was White House counsel. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you sure? Uh, yes. <laughs> oh. Ted Cruz was solicitor general. Of was Texas. Elena Kagan a solicitor general? Elena Kagan was Obama's first uh, solicitor general. That's was, who I was. She was also of. my first year law school dean. She left uh, during my first year of law school to become solicitor general. Oh, look at this, dude. He's just schooling me. Like left I did right. like how how strongly you responded to that and yeah. probably blew our uh, mic up. So so the so the the U.S. has has long had uh, a solicitor general position, but in the states it's actually a relatively recent phenomenon. So I'd probably say over the last fifteen or twenty years, the states have adopted uh, the solicitor general role, and that's in part because the states have seen the need to increase the quality of advocacy before appellate courts uh, to have people who are appellate specialists rather than just have the same person who did the trial go on and do the appeal, um, especially in front of, you know, the very important cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and the other is to, uh, when those really important cases come up, to have an advocate there so you don't have to go out and hire an advocate. So, you know, the state... Uh, in a lot of ways saves money by not having to hire as much outside counsel by having somebody who is a specialist in appeals and constitutional issues and is following stuff that's going on at the Supreme Court on a daily basis. So why do you need, so in my non-legal mind, if you know you got a lawyer and they uh, try, the, try a case in district court, let's say they win yeah. and the uh, other party appeals. Well, if that lawyer won the trial case like in district court, why do you need an appellate specialist in the district court and the kind of going up the chain? Yeah. There's a little bit of two, two different skills. So, you know, I'm not a trial lawyer and, um, you know, I, I really respect what trial lawyers do and, and they have a different skill set uh, than I do. Um, with appeals, it's a little bit more intellectual. It's a little bit more ivory tower. Um, and it's a little bit more focused on the law and how it should be shaped rather than the facts of the particular case and developing those facts. So the facts are very important, but when you're a trial lawyer, your main goal, one of your main goals is to develop the facts by interviewing the right witnesses, by uh, producing the right documents in order to win your case. By the time you go on appeal, fact development is over. Uh, you... Uh, you have the facts that have been set in the trial court. Appeals courts do not uh, find new facts. They just deal with the facts as they come to them. So you're a lot more focused on how does the law apply to the facts or, for that matter, pure questions of law of what 
is the law or what should the law be in a situation where there's no sort of clear precedential answer. Um, and, and that exercise is a little bit different from what uh, trial lawyers do. And appeals lawyers have the benefit of um, regularly knowing what appeals courts care about. So being able to filter out the issues that they think are most likely to prevail uh, at the appeals court, whether if you are appealing or you're defending an appeal. That is like super interesting to me. So this kind of gets into our next question then. And you've, you've already, I think, started to address why having a solicitor general, what that is and why that's important. What What is the difference between, other than the fact that he's your boss and she could be your boss if it was a her, what is the difference between the attorney general and the solicitor general? Like, why do you need both? Yeah. So I, I work for the attorney general. Right. And um, in a certain sense, I am one among several division chiefs. So the attorney general's office has uh, numerous divisions that do very many different things. So we have a consumer protection division. Uh, we have a division that deals with uh, public utilities and making sure the ratepayers are protected. Uh, we have a division that deals with uh, trial level litigation. We have a division that deals with legal counsel, i.e. advising uh, uh, state agencies uh, hire, who, who essentially hire the attorney general's office as their legal counsel, especially the smaller state agencies that don't have their own general counsel. We have a criminal appeals division that deals with all of the appeals from criminal convictions around the state. Uh, my office deals mainly with civil appeals, somewhat with criminal appeals, but also focuses on some of the most important appeals that we have in the state in front of the um, state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so the attorney general needs lots of help in being the chief legal officer of the state. And uh, I'm grateful that uh, Attorney General Mike Hunter has entrusted me with the responsibility in some of the state's most interesting cases. Interesting. That's super cool. You know, you mentioned that it's important to have, or it can really be beneficial to have, you know, someone like yourself who kind of specializes in this appellate process that's different than trial process. But there are some, you know, there are occasions when, you know, the attorney general has said, okay, we're going to, we are going to, in this instance, going to use an outside law firm um, to handle this issue or that issue. Is there, what, I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question and I'll, I'll ask it in whatever way I can, but I think you know what I'm getting at. So you answer it however you think is the best way. Um, what, when would you, when would you decide to hire outside counsel for a case versus having the Solicitor General's office handle the case? Yeah. I think that's a, it's often a question of uh, capacity and, um, uh, and, 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 and almost a, a cost benefit analysis. So, you know, the Attorney General's office right now is involved in a major lawsuit against opioid manufacturers. And our office doesn't necessarily have the capacity to engage in a massive complex litigation, um, especially because although we have many lawyers in our office, they are busy doing the state's work that they're normally doing on a day in and day out basis. So to add on top of that, a massive piece of litigation um, uh, that is very, very important to the state. Uh, doesn't necessarily is not necessarily the, the 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 wise things to do, and it might be a penny wise, pound foolish. Uh, and and then on top of that, you know, there is a significant dollar amount at stake in some of these cases. Sure. And so it sometimes makes sense for the state to hire outside counsel again to make sure that they win the case. Another example of where we hired outside counsel is a case that um, we now have in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that I'll talk about a little bit later where I advise the attorney general that the case is so, so very important that we need the absolute best legal representation. And we went out and hired um, a, a lady named Lisa Blatt, who uh, has argued, I think, 35 cases in front of the U Supreme Court and won 33 of them, That's, giving her that seems like a good record. potentially the best record of anybody alive right now. That's, so, she's the Michael Jordan of solicitors. Of private. Supreme Court lawyers. Supreme Court advocates, yeah. 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 Right, yeah. So uh, these are situations where, uh, you know, in our judgment, the state is best served uh, by hiring outside counsel. And that's not, if you think of the state and uh, as, uh, as any other corporate entity like uh, a big company, you know, 
big companies like Walmart or Boeing have their general counsels, right. but they often hire outside lawyers to litigate uh, their big cases because that is the wise thing to do. And if the attorney general is the, uh, the, uh, the general counsel for the state of Oklahoma, sometimes it, it makes sense to, even if you have a large legal team, hire outside counsel uh, to do work that uh, could be done a lot better by people who specialize in the area or sure. who have a greater capacity to do these things. Sure. So um, you've mentioned a couple, this is something that's just interesting to me. So you've mentioned a couple times that like you, you are the chief litigator for the state, right? On appeals and constitutional issues. Yeah, 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 yeah. On appeals, and, yeah, and this, and I thank have you lots for of ma- wonderful litigating colleagues. Yes, thank you for making me be more specific. Um, on appeals and constitutional issues, and so you would theoretically, right, be the chief advocate for the state of Oklahoma in cases that appear both before the U.S. Supreme Court and the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. That's correct. You also mentioned earlier, like, you're not going to say, like, that the U.S., that the Supreme Court of Oklahoma is, like, less than the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which I think is probably wise given what you do, and just the fact that they're two different legal systems. So that seems like that requires you to have a a lot of insight into both state law and federal law at the, like, appellate level. And I'm curious, do those ever interplay? Like, could you see a case that goes before the US, the Supreme Court of Oklahoma, and maybe one of the parties doesn't like the outcome, and then it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court? Like, is that a thing that can happen? Or is it is it are they parallel systems all the way up that don't ever... Yeah. That don't ever cross, and how do you maintain expertise in both of those things? Because that seems like it would be a lot. That's uh, yes, that that is very possible. Uh, one of the things I like about being an appellate lawyer is that it's a specialty without a specialty, so every case is um, a new thing uh, for me. And uh, there are uh, skills that appellate lawyers have that are translatable between the two court systems. Um, you do have to sort of deal with the, the quirks of any given court system as you're moving between them. But being an appellate lawyer at the uh, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, where Oklahoma is in, and being at uh, the, 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 the Oklahoma Supreme Court is uh, not too, too different. Um, and, you know, every case is new. So my first ever case at the, uh, at the Attorney General's office was the U.S. Supreme Court case, Glossop v. Gross, where uh, we were defending the state's lethal injection protocol, and I had to learn everything I could learn about benzodiazepines, <laughs> uh, which is a little bit maybe more in your wheelhouse, uh, <laughs> but the amount of studies I read on the Dazlam and other benzodiazepines would probably be, you know, a lot. pretty significant, <laughs> uh, even for a medical professional. Uh, and I've had to deal with uh, many other cases that go from you know learning about auditing to learning about groundwater modeling, it it, it varies quite a bit, and that's part of what I enjoy uh, about the profession. You also asked about you know whether cases at the Oklahoma Supreme Court or for that matter the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals gets appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they absolutely can. So first thing to know, because I mentioned it, is there are actually two highest courts in Oklahoma. The Oklahoma right. Court of Criminal Appeals, which right. is the highest court for criminal matters, and the Oklahoma Supreme Court, which is the highest court for civil matters. It's a little unusual. Only one other state has that system, and that's Texas right below us. I uh, like that you said Texas is below us. Yes. I appreciate that. Um, those cases can get appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court on federal issues. So state courts are competent to hear issues of both federal law and state law. But the state Supreme Court or the Court of Criminal Appeals is the highest authority on state law, and the U.S. Supreme Court will never question or overturn them on a question of state law. Um, but the uh, uh, the federal courts can sometimes hear um, state law issues, but only if it's somehow connected to a federal law issue they're already uh, hearing. Um, and so the federal courts generally are courts only hearing federal issues or issues where there are uh, parties that are litigating against each other from two different states called diversity cases. Um, and so, uh, yes, uh, we have litigated cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that have come from our Court of Criminal Appeals or from our state Supreme Court. Um, uh, none of them that made them to made it to the merit stage, at least in my experience, 
uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court, but some to the certiorari stage. So the Supreme Court can you just decide. Spoke Latin. What does that mean? <laughs> the Supreme Court can decide which cases to hear and which to not hear. And the way that you ask for them to decide is you petition for a writ of certiorari. I'm not going to go into the Latin of what that means exactly. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so so you know, um, the U.S. Supreme Court hears maybe. 60, 70, 80 cases a year, but gets thousands of petitions for writs of certiorari every year. Uh, and we deal with uh, many of them at okay. the Attorney General's office. So, for example, many of them from our Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, this past year, I think I dealt with three on the same issue from the Court of Criminal Appeals involving uh, uh, blood draws and fatality accidents to test for people's alcohol level uh, and whether it complies with the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which is a federal issue, which is why it could be appealed from a state court. Fourth to Amendment the US is court. unreasonable search and seizure, uh, among other things. Yes, right. And the interesting. So, I like you just like eh, I'm gonna show off right now. <laughs> I I just making sure that I was right and I that know. the the listeners know why. What the I'm. I'm not. Uh, I'm not shaming you. No, well. I forgot what the Fourth Amendment was for a few minutes there. I appreciate. I like that. Also, Mithen said, among other things. Oh, I don't claim to know all of them. Right, Mithen. <laughs> um, um, so, can I ask why? Why should regular people care about the Solicitor General? Like, how does it impact everyday? You know, Joe the plumber. Um, how does it impact our lives, and why should we care? Um, I'm not sure you should care about me <laughs> or look up to me in any particular sense. Uh, the Attorney I General's do. office, uh, the Attorney General's you. office, um, uh, as a whole, does a lot of work on behalf of the people, and we, as the Solicitor General's office, uh, do that as well. Especially when we're defending the constitutionality of laws, the best way uh, I can uh, express it is um, we are the state's defender of our democratic processes. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's an act of the legislature, uh, an act of the people, um, or an act of uh, the people's representatives in the form of executive officials, uh, we at the Attorney General's Office, and specifically within the Solicitor General's Office of the Attorney General's Office, defend those uh, democratic decisions. Um, I, I did take the liberty of listening to your first ever podcast on this podcast Ooh, our very first and one and it was covering a case that I argued really yes it was over the cigarette fee auto uh, sales tax uh, yes, yes. and uh, other tax cases so that was uh, your first podcast and my first argument at the Oklahoma Supreme Court I had been Solicitor General for four or five months at that point right and uh, obviously this is something that uh, the entire state was paying attention to it was the first ever time the Oklahoma Supreme Court had televised uh, oral arguments, right? And um, and uh, and and me as a solicitor general was up there arguing uh, those cases on behalf of the state. So in that, that's a great question. So when you say on behalf of the state, that was I'm trying to think. So when you, who is the state that you represent there? Is it the legislature? Is it the people? Because people might have different perspectives on the legality of one of those things, right? You know, sometimes it depends on who the other party chooses to sue as far as specifically. Um, But I represent the state uh, in in almost all of its forms, whether it is the state uh, as represented by the people. So, for example, when the people voted to amend the Constitution to change how uh, in 2016 to change how alcohol is regulated in the state. Right. Uh, the Retail Liquor Association and liquor stores sued over it, claiming that that constitutional amendment violated the federal constitution. Right. And I, as Solicitor General, came in and defended that law in right. state and federal district court, and we prevailed. And so come October, uh, there That's will right. be a, a new way alcohol is regulated in the state. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, no other case has made me more popular among my friends. <laughs> so, but in the case of the cigarette tax, this is when Gary Richardson was among those who sued, saying that the laws as passed were unconstitutional. Right. And so your role was to defend the laws as passed, saying they are constitutional, and here's why. Right. So the tobacco companies sued, uh, the uh, auto dealerships sued. Right. That's right. There uh, was several, yeah. several suits. Yes. Yeah, so it, it was an exciting few weeks it, it, it was and it was um <laughs> it was uh, uh 
uh, my I feel like my debut in this my public debut in the right. state right. Um, uh, as people seeing and watching the the live stream thing. Who, well, that's funny. I that remember watching dorky it. guy yeah. in glasses arguing. My staff would come into my office and be like, "What are you listening to?" Like usually it's music, and I was like, uh, "Supreme Court." case and they're like you're such a nerd um so, so, so in that you case in i was you know it's dependent on the suit but oftentimes who you represent is the party that would be enforcing the law so in some mm. cases for example it was the oklahoma tax commission who right. was who i was technically representing but in any event it's always in my capacity as defending the laws of the state mm-hmm. interesting so all right that's really that's really cool about like why people should care about what your office does. What is the two things, I guess, what, what are you doing right now? Are there any, like, are there, you know, obviously you deal right, like almost exclusively with pending litigation. So is there anything that you can talk about, like in general terms about interesting and important cases that you have coming up and in the future, how do people know what you guys are doing and keep up with it and, and know what's going on with the solicitor general's office? So one of my the fun parts about my job is that m- many, if not most, of my cases somehow end up in the newspaper. <laughs> um, there's no set way to to follow me or my office. You can subscribe to the attorney general's office's press releases, I'm sure, mm-hmm. and and that'll give you at least some idea of what I do. But more broadly, what the attorney general's office does. Sorry, guys. Just um, but my phone. oftentimes seeing the newspaper. So, for example, uh, the newspaper this morning, the morning we're recording this podcast, uh, there were four or five news stories about the uh, hearing on uh, the health department's medical marijuana rules, uh, which the new revised rules I was defending in court uh, and prevailed in convincing the court not to enjoin the rules uh, in other words, stop them from going forward as the litigation progresses. So they, uh, plaintiffs in that case challenged 21 rules, and the judge agreed with us that all 21 of them can go forward as the litigation goes forward. Um, and that was covered by four or five news organizations this morning. Uh, so that's one case that um, I'm litigating right now. It's unusual for me in the sense that it is not an appeal, nor is it a constitutional issue. Uh, but at the same time, because it was a important case um, that obviously was of wide public interest, the attorney general saw it fitting that uh, I defend the case. Uh, another case that is ongoing right now that your listeners might want to know about is currently at the U.S. Supreme Court. It's uh, it's, it's it's not common. It's not every year we have a case accepted for review by the U.S. Supreme Court. When you say for review, this means the court's going to hear the case. The court's going to hear the case. Which is a big deal. Which is a big deal. It's thousands, sort of, and th- thousands and thousands of people, they hear like 70 or 80 a year, right? Right, okay. exactly. SCOTUS um, blog. Yes. God, I love so SCOTUS blog. And OEA also has the recordings of all the arguments. Um, and that case is uh, about, essentially, whether the entire eastern half of the state is an Indian reservation, which... When I first moved to the state, um, I'm sure you've heard this before, uh, people very quickly informed me that Oklahoma has no Indian reservations. And this case uh, may upset that understanding to the tune of 48% of the state's population. Um, So the case is uh, actually a capital murder case where uh, a man committed a a brutal murder uh, in eastern Oklahoma near Henrietta. And uh, about five years after he was convicted and given the death penalty, uh, he began arguing that the state did not have jurisdiction to try him because he was a uh, enrolled member of the Creek tribe. His victim was also happened to be an enrolled member of the Creek tribe, and he committed the crime on the Creek reservation. And generally on Indian reservations, when a crime is committed by or against uh, a Native American, Uh, the state does not have jurisdiction to prosecute the crime, but instead the federal government or sometimes the tribe does. Uh, That argument did not prevail in the state courts or in the federal district court, but the Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit last year ruled that indeed uh, uh, the Creek Nation does have an existing reservation that covers most of the city of Tulsa and 11 other counties. 
Uh, so we uh, asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review that case. Uh, this is a case where we've hired Lisa Blatt, and uh, they accepted review, and the case will be heard sometime this fall. We are currently in the middle of briefing. But essentially, the, the question in the case is a question of law, but also a really interesting question of history, which is when Congress uh, did all that it did to prepare the state of Oklahoma for statehood and then make it a state, did it intend for the former Indian Territory, because if you remember your Oklahoma history, Oklahoma was a combination of the Oklahoma Territory uh -huh. and the Indian Territory. Did it intend the former Indian Territory, which is comprised uh, primarily of the five civilized tribes, to all be an Indian reservation, or did it intend it to not be an Indian reservation? Mm. So that's the central question in this case. It's, it's technically a murder case, but... Uh, that's the, not really the issue. But, but the, the real issue is a question of uh, Indian law and what did Congress intend uh, in its actions that spanned between the 1890s and 1907 when Oklahoma became a state. Oh, that's fascinating. It is fascinating. And, 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 it's, and it's, it's fascinating, but it's also really important, right? Because yeah. the state has convicted thousands of people uh, in eastern Oklahoma, many of whom uh, may claim that they or their victims were Native Americans, which is, according to the census, self-identified about 12% of the population in this area. Uh, but then also, um, uh, if, if you've ever been or spent time on an Indian reservation, there's lots of other things that are different about Indian reservations and land that is otherwise just completely regulated by the state, whether it relates to taxation or natural resource regulation like water or oil and gas or environmental regulation or zoning or, for that matter, um, uh, even sort of child custody proceedings and things like that, uh, a lot can change if, um, if this entire eastern half of the state is an Indian reservation. That is... That's interesting. Well, and um, so again, I'll mention the book. Boomtown does kind of reference some of the early parts and and how things were formed and not formed and whatever. Uh, there's another book that I've been reading <laughs> off and on for a couple of years called uh, Empire of the Summer Moon, which deals with the Comanche tribe, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, it deals with um, uh, the last chief of the Comanches uh, and and how. It, because it takes place here in Oklahoma and in North Texas, and so I think it's really interesting to to read about historical literature that's that's true that like happens here, and you can kind of place you know the Canadian River and where it bends and where the trains crossed, and that's Oklahoma City, and uh, so and uh, they talk and about that stuff. Go yeah, ahead. and Empire of the Sun Moon is a wonderful book. I'll also add to that um, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes, yeah. which sounds like just a, the same variation on a theme, right. but uh, it's about the Osage tribe in Oklahoma yes. and the beginnings of the FBI. Uh, New York Times bestseller, I think, from 2016. Yeah, yeah, also a very excellent book. Yeah, that's next on my list. I think that stuff is is fascinating. And Oklahoma has such a rich history with yeah. that, and it's a big deal. Also. This, this may have other implications because in 2020 is when the state has to renegotiate tribal compacts. Is it 2020? Uh, it's coming so. up soon yeah. because they didn't like they didn't want to address right. ball and dice because right. they wanted to, the legislature wanted to keep that in their pocket to use that in negotiations for the tribal compacts. Is it 2022? It's sometime soon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and on, uh, again, on a personal note, I think it's wacky and maybe not cool that they're like, well, we, we want to hold on to this because we're getting a really unfair deal on this with the tribes. And I want to be like, do you, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing you can say that's going to be fair for the tribes yeah. uh, from their point of view, because we totally hose them for several hundred years. Yeah. Still today, really. But this could be a huge, I mean, this has, I think depending on how this goes, will have major implications for, for the way that not just Oklahoma, but the United States relates to Native Americans. 100%. Interesting. Well, Mithin, we've had many guests on the show. A lot of people that are interesting to talk to. You've been very interesting to talk to. <laughs> I think that I, I'm going to go ahead and throw out there. Everybody we've had on the sh everyone we've had on the show so far, you have the most interesting and cool job. You have a cool job. That's, so, that's impressive. You've had so. state senators on here before. So. And and they're great, but you have a really cool job. But there's like 49 of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we really uh, appreciate your time. appreciate all your insight. appreciate you talking to people about what it is you do. And, and again, I think this is just another 
another great example of, hey, y'all, here's this uh, dude. You Many of you didn't even know he exists, but his job and what he does has a huge impact on how you get to live your life every day. Local government matters, man. That's true. Maybe there's some child listening in their parent's car, and they too want to grow up and become a solicitor general. Oh, I hope that happens. I do too. <laughs> if we get an email, we're going to forward it to you. In, in 25 years. That's right. <laughs> so That's right. So. All right, man. All right. Wrap, wrap it up. That brings us to the end of this episode. Where's my button? There we go. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, all those places. Uh, that helps other people discover us. You can also just tell your friends about us. That would be great. Uh, we really hope that we can help you and your friends become better informed and better educated and engaged Oklahomans. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Melson. Andy is at Andy OKC. You can like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Let's Fix This Okay. Check out our events tab on there. We've got a bunch of stuff coming up this year. Also over on our website, letsfixthisok.org. We've got an events page there. We've got our store that I mentioned earlier, and a bunch of other jazz. Uh, Going to be adding some really great resources in the next couple of months. Uh, so be sure to check it out. Um, also make a donation while you're there. That would be really excellent as well and help us keep doing this and do what we're doing. Our theme music is provided by the Sugar Free All-Stars. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott and me. And we are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Check them out. Wafty Show coming back online here next month. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week. <laughs>